Welcome to Lines from Loganberry, a show where we, your friendly local neighborhood booksellers at Loganberry Books, talk to authors to learn what makes their books tick. This week, we talk to author Thridi Umrigar about her new novel, Honor, in conversation with fellow authors Paula McLean and Loganberry's own Sarah Willis. They discuss the book's heavy emotional and political swings as it explores the personal risks of interfaith marriage in modern-day India and the meaning of honor in the face of violence. All of this and more this week on Lines from Loganberry. Hello, and welcome to Loganberry Books event for Thridi Umbergar's newest book, Honor. We are excited to have Thridi with us tonight to talk about honor in conversation with Paula McLean. I am exceptionally excited because Thridi and Paula are Cleveland authors and two of my dearest friends. So along with all of you getting to listen to Thridi talk with Paula about honor and the process of writing, I get to show off these two wonderful writers and represent Loganberry Books where I work. I'm now gonna pass the wand over to Thridi Amrigar and Paula McLean. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks, Miranda, and congratulations, Thridi, on this beautiful new book. I'm just delighted. If you're wondering why I'm sitting outside, I am not in Ohio. I am at a friend's house in Phoenix. I flew out earlier this week for a family or a, a friend's uh, family funeral. So that's what I'm doing here. And there are doves and all sorts of birds behind me. It sounds like a, you know, that setting on white noise for your bedside thing where the jungle noises are happening. So there's a little bit of that. So you'll have to Forgive me, but yeah, congratulations, Thridi. And thank you so much you for, for joining us tonight. For those of you who haven't had a chance to read Honor yet, I think it would be helpful, Thridi, if you started us off by just giving us the kind of lowdown, Reader's Digest, condensed version of the plot with the story is a little bit for those of us who haven't had a chance to read the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Paula. And especially under such oh, thank you. tough circumstances. Thank you. And it's doing my soul good to not look out my window at snowy Ohio, but to see the wildlife and the uh, It was 68 degrees here today. Lest you feel too sorry for me. So yeah. Well, okay. All right. I know. I know. It's obscene. So about Honor. So Honor basically tells the story of two women from very different walks of life. The one woman, her name is Mina. She grows up in this small village. She is basically the daughter and the sister of peasants. She is, for all practical purposes, illiterate. I mean, she just grows up in very, very, you know, narrow and modest circumstances. And she has followed a pretty traditional path. You know, she's very much controlled by the patriarchal traditions of this little village until one day she and her younger sister decide to get a job outside the home. And in doing so, they become the first women in the village to have ever done such a thing, which, which doesn't even register as any kind of a transgression for most of us. But in this very closed and, and traditional society, it's quite a thing. And she incurs the wrath of her brothers and all the men of the village because of that. And then she kind of doubles down, if you will, on that mistake by actually falling in love with one of her co-workers who happens to be Muslim. So here's this Hindu woman who basically elopes with a Muslim man. 
and for these for these transgressions, she pays a very, very high price. Enter the second major character, Smita, who is this Indian American journalist who almost unwillingly, she almost gets tricked into coming to India to cover Amina's story. And, and then the rest of the novel simply becomes a kind of parallel love story, if you will, with Mina talking to us in her own voice, giving us her backstory, telling us about this very kind of tentative and timid courtship that she has with Abdul, the man that she ends up marrying. And then there's a strange kind of parallel love story, which is not just Smita and a romantic partner, but also Smita, who we realize early on has never, you know, she was born and raised in Bombay. Her whole family leaves when she's 14. But for reasons that we are not aware of initially, she has vowed never to step foot in the country again. So she has this very complicated relationship with the country of her birth. And then gradually in getting to know Mina's story and frankly being inspired by Mina's acts of courage, Smita kind of finds her own stride and, and has to really re reassess her own relationship with India. Right, and with ideas of a home and belonging, life's purpose and all of that. I mean, you're tackling such huge themes and taking really big bites politically too. And I just felt like you took on a, a lot with this book and with really um, powerful and heartbreaking results. So I thought it was just an absolutely beautiful book. Um, but tell us how this idea kind of came to you. I know your process is very different from mine and you have more books under your belt, but I'm Really curious, before we talk about the range of your work, to talk about how this idea in particular first visited upon you and how you felt about it from, from the beginning. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question and, and one that I'm very happy to answer because it allows me to give credit to the original uh, source of inspiration. So I think maybe around 2016-ish, I came across a series of articles that ran in the New York Times written by this really brilliant journalist. Her name is Ellen Berry, and I believe she was the South Asian uh, bureau chief at that time. And she had a particular interest in telling the stories of rural India. And there was this one story that Paula just knocked my socks off about exactly what I described a few minutes earlier about this little village where some of the women dared to go get a job outside their homes. And, and they were ostracized for that. And it was really like the wrath of all the elders of the village came down on them and how defiant they were and how incredibly brave they were. And even while I was reading the story, I just thought, holy cow, this is, this is the stuff of fiction. I mean, somebody should make a movie out of these women and, and the courage and, and just the, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that in, you know, the 21st century, this kind of stuff was happening, much less happening in a country where I had spent the first 20, 21 years of my life, you know? So I thought about it. I never thought of it in the context of, oh, not only should this be a novel, but I should be the writer of this novel. I just, you know, I just had that initial response to it. But it kept, it stayed with me, you know, that story and the stories that followed about 
corruption in small town India, endemic corruption in the police force, all of that seemed to sort of click in place. And that ended up being the backbone of the book, which is Mina's story. And at the same time, I started reading a lot. You know, I would come across articles on honor killings and and just punishment meted out to women who dared step out of the boundaries that was set for them by other people. And I started thinking, you know, we talk about fundamental rights. I mean, we talk about them in this country. We talk about them certainly in India. You know, India and America, the two, quote unquote, world's largest democracies, right? And what is more fundamental than the right to choose who you love, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, apart from sort of the basics of life, you know, what feeds the spirit, what feeds the soul is choosing your life partner, is choosing who to love, right? And, and that right is just taken away, no questions asked for millions of people. So I started thinking along those lines. And then I also had a kind of another memory, which was much older and perhaps in some ways more personal, which was a story that my father had told me way back in the 1990s when I was here and you know my family was in India about, about what came to be known as the Bombay riots of the early 1990s. And that was an inner religious riot also. And my father had played a very, very small role, but I would claim an honorable role in, in trying to help, not save anybody's lives, nothing that dramatic, but just help some Muslim neighbors that we had at the time when they were under a lot of pressure. And I had always been impressed with his conduct and the story that he had told. And that further sort of made me think of what does it mean to be an honorable person? You know, this is a word that we use frequently, but what does honor really mean? Is it simply the act of doing the right thing when everything around you prohibits you from doing the right thing? You know, is it as well, basic? and the title does that, I think, really beautifully because it sort of holds up a blade, but sort of the double edged sword of that word and how it can be used to um, justify atrocity, for instance, and abuse of power and tremendous violence and degradation right. of other human lives. And then on the other side, this deeper idea that perhaps we only can decide or illuminate for ourselves over time, which is what does it mean to us individually to right. have honor? And, and I always think of literature as some kind of a reclamation project, you know? I mean, this is what books can help us do. It can help us reclaim words. It can help us reclaim language. And perhaps it can also help us reclaim concepts. I wanted to salvage this word and, and give it back to the people to whom it genuinely belongs to. You know, yeah. people like Mina, people like her husband, a very idealistic husband, Abdul. Yes, Abdul is so beautiful because he has this pure heart and it's through the purity of his heart and his dignity and his innate goodness. It's almost like he, he glows sort of angelically, but he can see a future that doesn't exist. Right. He thinks they're doing something incredibly modern, right? right. Like right. merging, you know, yeah. Hindu, Hindustan, right? In the, the 
um, and yet that world doesn't actually exist except right. ideologically right. as a as a fantasy. Right. And and they both pay a heavy price right. for that. So you're telling such a huge story and a heartbreaking story, and then there's this heavy political awareness. I think a lot of people who would turn to this book would be shocked, maybe in the way that you were even having your own experience of India by some of the, the horrible um, occurrences in the name of honor and upholding traditions and patriarchal notions. Did you have any anxiety when you began the book about either about doing justice to so big an issue or by receiving some backlash? I mean, you're kind of a badass, so I doubt that you were, I'd just be interested in knowing. The, some minor backlash has started already. I mean, I've gotten some very defensive emails from people, which, you know, one never knows whether to ignore them or to write back. And you can guess, knowing me as well as you do, Paula, you know that I wrote back. It was very polite. And it was, you know, I basically said, you have to read the book before I can really you know, engage in a, in a universal kind of conversation with you about these topics. But so there's been a little bit of that. It's so far, it's been mostly all right. You know, book is new out in the world. We shall see. If I had any concerns or fears at all, it was, I think, I have to think about this and I haven't really given it any thought. So I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but I think it's probably my only book that I can trace the origin point of the book to somebody else's work, right? You know, um, to Ellen Berry's work, being inspired by that, um, and and there's a special kind of responsibility that comes from that, even though everything is made up and it's a huge departure from, you know, I don't think she would recognize any of the characters uh, in my novel, but there is just that sense of you know, some, some measure of, I don't even know how to finish that sentence, to be honest with you, but, but if there was any concern at all, it was simply about that. And one thing that I did not allow myself to do when I finally, much later, decided that I could write this book, uh, is I never went back and read any of her articles again, because I didn't want to lift entire you know, ideas or, you know, I mean, I was inspired by the fact that I'd read this article about women, you know, paying a price, not, not anything as dramatic as what's in the book, but, you know, working outside the home. But beyond that, I didn't want to be influenced by it again, once I decided that this would become my project. So, you know, as a former journalist, I'm always a little squeamish about, heaven forbid, like, accidentally, you know, stealing somebody else's work or something like that. So if there was any anxiety, it was around that. And I think Ellen Berry has read my novel. And in fact, I'm going to be in conversation with her, I believe, next week. So I think we're good. That'll be so interesting. It'll be that's, great that's, for me. That's for another event for yeah. another. Yeah. Yeah. Can people, me. if they're interested, tune in to that event as well? Oh, sure. It's all up on my website. All the events are listed there. Yeah. Wow. So it's so interesting because, you know, I also navigate that edge between fact and, and fiction. Absolutely. And it can be really surprising sometimes that feeling of responsibility that you mentioned because the, 
the truth has it seems to have its own agenda, even when we think we know where the book is heading. And so I'm curious about whether there were any surprises for you once you decided to commit to this point of ignition and launch into the stories, the story of, were there any surprises along the way where the book seemed to have its own idea how to move forward? Yeah, I think until I did a strong first draft, I wasn't sure of the ending of the book at all. I didn't know how the second parallel love story, which granted is, is in some ways, well, I won't even characterize it as minor or major. It's just another love story between two other characters. I didn't know where that was headed. I didn't know. I knew that these individuals were attracted to one another. They were very fond of one another, but I just, I, I couldn't guess at the ending. I didn't know where they would take me and where they would take the book. And it ended up in a place that I'm not sure if I had mapped it out earlier, that would have been my end point. So that came as a bit of a surprise, I would say. Yeah. Well, I love it. I mean, and the romance piece isn't just Hollywood romance, mm -hmm. you know, some of it is, it feels almost archetypal, like the story of Adam and Eve, for instance, and even deeper and, and older ideas of what it means to be audacious enough to risk everything for love. So that's a piece of it. And then to have the audacity to think someone from Mina's station in her culture, having no power, right, right, and no resources, to be audacious enough to believe that her life belongs to herself. And I wonder if if that second piece of, of having the courage to marry Abdul could have ever happened until, you know, you said the word resources, and that that triggered something in that she does have resources because she now has an independent income. And even though her older brother lays claim to that and says, basically says, how can a woman have her own money? I mean, even though she's the one sweating and earning it, he, he takes her income away from her. But for the first time in her life, there is some measure of economic independence, you know? Okay. And so I think it's like a ladder that Mina climbs, you know? And the first step of that ladder is economic independence. And then that gives her the courage Right. and the permission, perhaps, to take another step. There's a great line in the book, something about how we talk about wounded animals being dangerous, but actually there's nothing more dangerous than a man whose pride right. has been wounded. And that's something that happens in the book, yes. When Mina outsteps the boundaries of what is, in her brother's eyes, right. acceptable. Because, of course, women not only have no power they don't they don't have any station right in a way they don't actually exist they can't sign for anything for instance right they can't own anything like if she goes to work in the factory then all of her wages in fact go to her brother unless she marries and then of course all the wages go to her husband so she's upending the power structure but she does it and her sister does it as well sort of they're they kind of back into their own undoing in a way yeah really yeah really but but again i don't think there's so much to unpack there i mean one is simply that notion of saving face 
which yeah. is so prominent in traditional societies. You know, the whole, what will the neighbors say? What is my standing in my community? I mean, on one hand, I suppose that's true for all cultures, but you know, in insular cultures, it seems even more pronounced. And her brother is a great example of that because even while he's bad-mouthing his own sisters and sort of singing, you know, feeling sorry for himself, going around the village, basically appealing to people to ostracize the two sisters for what they're doing, he is the happy recipient of their income, right? So his station in life goes up because he now has more money. I mean, the land that he's toiling away at is yielding less and less, you know, right. that's climate change, but that's a whole, whole different conversation that we won't get into. So he is desperate, but his pride won't let him be gracious and say, how great is it that our little family of four, two brothers and two sisters now has a new revenue source, right? One can imagine that that could be a response, but but Again, but that would have to remake the world because it doesn't. Right. I'm sounding like Abdul now. Yeah. yeah now you yeah. do sound like Abdul. And of course, <laughs> it's beautiful. The idealism at stake. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if only. If only. His yeah. heart could be large enough. But of course, his heart is not large enough. And the sad part is Mina remembers, not only remembers him fondly for the closeness of their youth, but much of what she does as a young woman for her family and for her brothers, even though her own station is, you know, she's, she might as well be an animal, right, is done out of love. So she too, has tremendous dignity and, and honor and stands almost as a, a symbol of how we all sh should be, right, finding forgiveness in our hearts for those who, who right. have done this great wrong, and right. while also not ever letting go of the fact I don't know. I don't know that we have that we have some value, whether or not she can admit it. It's some it's like a small cinder right in her in her heart. She must believe it at some point or else she wouldn't be fighting so hard. Yeah, right? I think so. I think so. And and there's just something about Abdul that's so different than her brothers that it just it speaks to her. You know, yeah. it gets her in some oh, way. She can't help herself. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Their love story, I have to say, is so beautiful. And also just so, it's just to me when I, you know, it was on page 90 or something or 100 when the book shifts to Perfect. the second section and Mina's voice enters the scene and suddenly I felt I was reading almost a different book and I'm not sure, you know, I've read a lot of your work that there's a poetry and just as I just heard voice just really struck me and did you know as you were drafting that Mina's voice would come along that you would tell part of the story in her own words from yes. the first yes. yes and in fact if if I'm remembering clearly and Paula you know better than most people how it is by the time you're on the fifth or sixth draft you know you've sort of forgotten what the initial draft looked like at least that's how it is for me but if I'm remembering this correctly I think Mina's voice initially entered the narrative much sooner. But I, I always knew two things. I knew that Mina had to talk to us directly and that she had to speak to us in the first person. I just felt like that much I owed her, that much the novel owed her, because Mina's the story of a woman who has been silenced most of her life. 
You know, she has no voice, literally. She has no agency. She has no say so in what happens to her. And I felt like the least I could do in this novel is is give her that voice. I mean, very directly give her that voice. You Absolutely. Know? So she can tell her own story. It's, she can tell her. She's more than it's a radical. It's a radical act and it restructures the the hierarchy. Um, we talked really briefly before we got on the air about perhaps you reading a little section in Nina's voice. Would you be willing to do that for us? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll do that now. Thank okay. And it's really going to be a very uh, short passage, I think. But I believe, let me just check. Yeah, this is book two, and this is where we are introduced to Mina for the first time. At night, I see my husband burn. In my dreams, I smell the gasoline and see the fire climb like a vine over his body. Over and over again, I watch him turn into smoke before my unfortunate eyes, flames leaping from his hair, like from the head of the god Agni. My husband's name was Abdul. It is a Muslim name, meaning servant. And all his life, that's what he did, serve someone. Why did Ami not name her son after a king? Then maybe Abdul could have been rich and powerful like Rupal, the chief of my old village. Rupal is a magic man, strong as a bull with dark powers. People in my village still remember how Rupal once pulled a live snake out of a woman's mouth and turned it into a bird. With my own eyes, I have seen him walk on hot coals and not burn his feet. No, the burning is reserved for poor people like us. In the first information report made while Ami was burying her oldest son and I was still fighting for my life in the hospital, the police wrote unknown persons, even though everybody knew who killed Abdul. But I demanded that the police register a fresh report and name my brothers as the suspects. In those dark days, Anjali was the only one who insisted that justice must be served. I just love that. So Anjali is the lawyer who convinces Mina that she has a case. And of course, Mina agrees, but she does it mainly to protect her, her daughter as well. And that's something that escalates the extremity of Mina's situation is not only that she has the audacity to do this unspeakable thing, which is to marry um, a Muslim, but that she would be carrying his child. I think some of the language of the book is that it continues this, you know, this uh, atrocity, right? Throughout the generations, like a stain, right? right. I mean, this is from the brother's point of view. From the brother's they, point yeah. of view, obviously. Yeah, they see but, this as a dark stain that, that permeates. Exactly. And so that is, that, is the, that is sort of the unforgivable moment. So I want to talk for a minute about the one of one of the villains of, of the book or an easy villain in a way. It's RuPaul, the magician who, you know, pulls the live snake out of the whatever and walk walks across the soul, the coals, who has this um power over the entire village and pretty much whatever he says goes right and he can ruin a life at like the snap right. of a finger but I, you do this really interesting thing 
in the book, which is not to make him just this easy, um, he's a, you know, he's like, he's crazy, he's a fanatic, there's this radical idea, and sort of he's the bad guy at the center of the tale. And there's this wonderful moment, I'm just going to say, do you mind if I read just a little from oh, the book? No, that sort of explains sort of kind of a larger, it just broadens the problem. Monster, demon, Satan. In Smita's line of work, people often bandied around such terms to explain away horrendous behavior. So a character like RuPaul, right? Every right. time there was a mass shooting in America, for instance, there was a rush to label the shooter a crazed monster rather than place him within the context of a culture that fetishized guns. And then later, how alarmingly easy it had been to get millions to participate in genocide during both the Holocaust and partition, human beings could apparently been turned into killers as effortlessly as turning a key. All one had to do was use a few buzzwords, God, country, religion, honor. No, men like RuPaul were not the problem. The problem lay with the culture from which they bubbled up. And I read that, I just thought, Yes, but also I really have to applaud your courage. And there's something at the core of the book, which is who are those who will stand against the tide, who will risk their lives, who will risk their families in order to sort of call a spade a spade and to say what is. And, and so did you know that the book was going to sort of tackle that territory as well? I think not, perhaps. Um, the subtext was always there because there are examples of really, really vile behavior. And then there are examples throughout the book of, of really sort of decent and, and kind and generous behavior and, and courageous behavior. So I guess in that sense, the politics of the book, if that's how you want to characterize it, were already there. But I think it's only when I was writing Smita's section, you know, the one that you just read, she covers women's issues throughout the world. She's a foreign correspondent with that specialty beat. And I asked myself, what would this woman have seen and what would she have not seen? And the answer was, she would have seen everything. She would have seen every horrific aspect of human behavior, you know, war, famine, you know, man-made famine, you name it, and, and she would have witnessed those horrors. And and where do we assign the blame? It, I, I just think it's too easy to explain right. away acts as saying right. somebody's crazy, you know? Maybe exactly. the entire society that's crazy, you know? And that, of course, becomes it's a whole... Of course, it's so much more difficult and, and complicated to turn to turn it all back on, on ourselves. And of course, our own country is so divided, right? Right. right. And, and justifies all, all kinds of things in order to uphold their, whatever their own beliefs. And I think there's this really interesting bridge building though that happens in the book. And I think one of the most surprising things that you do is to take these two women who seem so disparate, who come from entirely different, um, very stratums, you know, and culturally speaking, in terms of their resources, their their place in the world, and yet you show that they're much more alike than we might ever imagine. And it's something that Mina it elevates her, I think, in a way, in her intuition that when she meets Smita for the first time, she sees her. Basically, she says, 
you know, I've always felt alone. I always felt that I didn't belong in the world. And uh, Smita says, yes, I understand. And Mina says, I know you understand. I see this in you. I see that you too struggle with ideas of where you belong in the world. Right. Yeah. There's that, yeah, you're right. You're right, Paula. I had forgotten that passage, that there is that instant recognition. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, Smita doesn't want to see herself in Mina, right? She struggles with that because what would it mean if, if Smita has to compare herself to, to Mina. I mean, that really threatens her. I mean, she's, she's this professional woman, independent, right. free New Yorker, you know, and, and here's this humble peasant woman, half her face ruined um, by her brothers saying that we are kindred spirits in some ways, that we see something of one another in each other. That threatens Smita's sense of self, but you're right. Mina, Mina nails it from the very beginning. She know? does. She has incredible insight. She has incredible humanity, you know, which she basically says was a gift from Abdul, that the moment her heart was opened by love and that even after his death, Abdul is the thing that drains her heart of rage and bitterness right. every night when she right. connects with him in her dreams. It's just this beautiful idea. Because I think what Abdul does by just asking one question early on about um, Hindus and Muslims, you know, it shatters a deeply held lifelong belief that Mina ha has just because of the culture and religion that she's raised in about the two being divided and separate. And, and Abdul just asks one question, and there's a line in the book that says something to the effect of, you know, I had always carried this belief in my heart, but now when I looked at my heart, I realized there was nothing in there. It was empty, you know? Mm -hmm. So basically, and then she tries to sort of backpedal and says, well, I don't really believe this. My brothers believe this, you know? She does a little bit of blame shifting over there. Um, but, you know, sometimes what we think are closely held beliefs, when we really examine them, when we examine where we learn those beliefs, they don't even originate with us, right? They, they come from the air. They come from the culture around us. And it doesn't take much to change our minds. Yeah, and to puncture, to puncture that if we have the courage to right. really, I mean, that's what critical thinking is. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And if we can do that with our with our own beliefs. Yeah. So, what would you hope readers would take away from this story? I think I know the answer to this, and I think it's actually what you took away from this book. I would hope readers would join you in what you said just a few paragraphs ago, where you said, you know, you immediately looked at that section where Smita talks about mass casualties and all of that, and you connected what I'm writing about that occurs in India to what issues we are grappling with in terms of being a divided nation and all of that here. And since the bulk of my readership is American readers, the thing that would hurt me very much is if somebody read this novel and just went tisk, 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 and, you know, basically said, oh my God, I'm so lucky to be American and I'm Thankfully, I'm 10,000 miles away from these people and what's happening out there. And it has absolutely nothing to do with my life. You know, that to me, that means I have failed. 
as a writer, mm-hmm. if that's if that's the takeaway. That that, you know? would, be, that, that would be a waste. It's so, it would be a waste, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think that there is such opportunity now to raise awareness as as you're doing, right? Of other cultures and ideologies. And also that it's too easy then to say, oh, how horrible, right? right? Simply react and then to leave it there as if it doesn't have anything to do with us. And I think what you're doing is you're sort of turning that around and, and inviting people to kind of apply that it's almost like an invitation to awareness. Okay, now once you're woke, right? <laughs> what are you going to do with that awareness? What are you going to do with that opportunity, right? To see more and to see inside your own heart about what drives you and, right? And are, yeah. are you living your own values? Yeah, I just feel like anytime you have any kind of privilege, the thing to do is to not hold on to it, but to break it open and to give it away. You know, it's just... Yeah. It's, it's, it's a better way to live, I think, ultimately. It's really, well, it's really well said. Thank you. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash loganberrybooks at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com. Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish and recorded by Miranda Richmond. As always, tune in next time for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs>